you know, what customers would want and what ultimately is a problem that you're solving. And if your image, graphic, product, feature, what have you, services that original purpose that you set out to do, then I would say that's when you can consider it done and successful. Welcome back to the Medical Illustration Podcast. This is your host, Paul Kelly. It can be challenging to make a living through creative work, so it's always helpful to hear the stories of those who've navigated this terrain and found success. On this episode in particular, I'm going to strongly encourage my listeners to view the guest's work before listening if possible, so you can get a bit of context for who this person is and what she's accomplished. In the past few years, one company has seen unprecedented growth in the medical illustration space, even in spite of lockdowns and precarious market conditions. BioRender is a powerful scientific graphics tool that allows the user to make their own images using thousands of pre-made icons and templates from more than 30 fields of life sciences. BioRender is one of the fastest growing medical illustration and scientific visualization companies in the industry. They are perpetually hiring and expanding, and a considerable portion of their workforce is remote. So if you're looking to enter the field, the BioRender careers page might be something to look into. It was an absolute joy and honor to do this interview. Please enjoy this conversation with the CEO and founder of BioRender, Shizuka Aoki. How about yourself? Do you uh, do any like online training or courses or anything? That's a good question. You know, during the pandemic, I busted out my oil paints from the storage locker. Nice. So I've been getting back in touch with that side of my, uh, my passions and hobbies. Funny enough, I did my undergrad in fine art. And, you know, as a student, you're going to the student discount section and getting all like the academic paints and the products. And now Mm -hmm. that like, you know, I'm working and I can like, quote unquote, afford the professional grade stuff. It's like such a different experience, mm. like being an oil painter that mm-hmm. can afford the high grade oil paints now. Oh, heck yeah. So, um, yeah, it's like all new material I've purchased and it's, it's great. Yeah. It's, it's been fun. So I've actually taken some online courses of, of some of my favorite oil painters. Oh, nice. At, uh, yeah. It translates not, not bad. Like, you know, you can kind of pause and play and get access to artists that I never thought I'd learn from because you've got to like, you know, fly out there and travel. They're all out in like the middle States in the U S or, or Europe. So mm-hmm. that's been really cool. Silver, silver lining. Nice. Yeah. I think with those oil paints, it's interesting. You mentioned that because I've always sort of had the impression that it in, in art supplies, I think it is one of the few product lines where you really do get what you pay for. And when you get the more expensive ones, they're going to perform better and they're going to last better. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. My dad's a chef. And so he said, mm-hmm. you're really only as good as the quality of your knife. And so like getting one solid, that's like one life hack recommend to anyone is getting a solid quality kitchen knife, chef knife that'll last you decades. Mm-hmm. Right on. Yeah. Sound advice. <laughs> Do you like to cook? I love it. Yeah. Love it. I mean, I grew up in the restaurant industry. Oh, really? It's kind of all I knew growing up. Yeah. Yeah. When I moved to, when we moved to Canada from Japan as a family, it was my dad jokes. It was like the only skill he had known growing up because interesting. my grandmother had a, a restaurant in Tokyo. And so he grew up in that restaurant industry. And so he kind of carried that through with him to Canada. 
when he came here. So I worked my way up. I was a bookkeeper as a kid using Lotus one, two, three. I don't think anybody knows what that is. It's like an old fashioned Excel before Microsoft. Oh, existed. right. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. I did bookkeeping. I did dishwashing, hostessing, waitressing, bartending, catering delivery. Yeah. It kind of uh, builds character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I also had uh, some experience outside of when, after I graduated high school, I had no interest in going to college or university. I was just like, no, no, I just want to work and make money. And one of the first jobs I got was working in a restaurant. And nice. yeah. And so, what positions? Uh, I started as a cook, line order cook. Um, oh, nice. But uh, I actually got kicked out of the kitchen because I was too much of a perfectionist with plating. And they were like, dude, you're taking too this. No, no, just get it out. Get it out. But I always wanted cold. Let it go. They did look beautiful. Let me tell you my salads. <laughs> like, oh, my God, everything was like a, a, it looked like a fractal like mandala. Like they were gorgeous. But it, the place was like, no, guy, it, you know, they got to be fast. The customers were hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It really does teach you a lot about, um, I think, the true, uh, I don't know, essence of people's anger, maybe. I mean, like. <laughs> <laughs> heated moments you know it's a hot kitchen mm -hmm. you got hangry customers and uh, sometimes screaming babies it's like yeah the worst of all worlds yeah but really valuable life skills that you know it's it is one of the best environments i think to build some of those you know like yeah people skills team you know team skills uh 100 and uh time management skills right Oh, hundred percent. Oh my gosh. Like no other. I'd say if I get a resume and they've got restaurant or hospitality experience, they're already up four or five notches in my books because it comes like the minimum requirement for that. And the learnings from it are so valuable. So, so valuable. The empathy that you develop, the egolessness you need for like taking a lot of crap from angry customers. Oh yeah. People really give it to you. And you got, you got to just smile and nod and say, no problem. We'll, we'll figure this out. We'll fix this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, I want to circle back to that because I actually was going to ask you about the types of qualities you look for in applicants. I wanted to start a little bit with, you know, your own history and path in your career. So at what point did you decide you wanted to become a medical illustrator? I remember in grade nine. I was trying to grapple, like, you know, trying to figure out my time, my uh, schedule for high school and my art teacher who I adored, her name was Ms. Tikalik. She saw that I was struggling to figure out, you know, do I focus on sciences and do I focus on art? And now thinking back, it was kind of ridiculous that as like a 12, 13 year old, I was like having an existential crisis of what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> but I, I just loved both. And I thought they were too polar to do together. So she said, you know, here's a list of uh, careers you can actually follow that combine art and science. There was like architecture on there. I think there was like art therapy and then medical illustration that just like jumped out on the page. Mm. And I was like, what is this magical field? And I think we all come across it in different ways. Maybe my exposure to it was a little early. That being said, it was sort of, I'm dating myself before the era of the internet. So I had to like write letters to all these schools and get information about, you know, what these schools were about. They sent me brochures. I think there were like, when I wrote to Hopkins, the, the airbrush course was still on there too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Let's see. Let me date myself. I graduated high school in 2003. So 
it was like late nineties, maybe anyway. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how it all began. So then I, I did focus hundred percent of my energies towards a combination of science and art through high school and then through university. And then realizing in Canada, you know, they didn't have, cause I grew up in, in the Toronto area. didn't, they didn't have like a undergraduate program per se. So kind of had to craft my way through my undergrad, took a life science degree, um, and a fine art degree at Queens, kind of a dual degree, I guess. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but even that was tough because I had to get a lot of permissions to take courses that were exclusive to the fine art students mm. or exclusive to the life science students. So had to kind of fight my way through that, but it was worth it in the end. I, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. So now coming from Toronto, I'm sure you get this question a lot because I get this question having grown up in Chicago and going to, to the Toronto program. Oh, right. Oh, I forgot that you'd grown up in Chicago. That's really cool. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. Great city. Great city. I love it. But I'm sure you get this similar question. People always ask me, well, wait a minute, if you're from Chicago, why didn't you go to the Chicago program? So similar question. <laughs> if you, if you grew up in Toronto, why did you choose Hopkins uh, rather than going to the Toronto program? Toronto program. The Toronto program was really attractive to me. I think it was the nature of wanting to sort of explore maybe in the US. Um, maybe the class size of Hopkins was also attractive to me. Mm. I had heard it was um, about four to six students to like seven profs. And I thought, oh, wow, that experience might be interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, it, this might sound strange, and it goes to show how important is, you know, customer services, but uh, the, the administrator at Hopkins was so responsive to my emails mm. that I felt like I already had a shoe in, in the way that she was answering my questions. And um, like I said, they sent me all those brochures over the years and kind of kept that rapport. And um, that was one of the main reasons actually that attracted me there. Um, mm. The other schools I actually didn't really look into as much, but um, definitely I had my heart set on um, both the, the the Hopkins program and, and then Toronto. Right on, right on. When you think about all the different options you might have had looking at different career choices, and I'm sure you've also been looking at all sorts of different art throughout you know, your, your development, what do you think makes the work of medical illustration unique and distinct from other high-level artwork? You know, what is it about this training that mm. creates a, sort of a unique look and aesthetic? That's interesting. You know, it's, it's hard to peg what like a unique aesthetic would be for medical illustration because as, as you can see, like even within our colleagues, there's such a range of styles and applications of medical illustration. Mm -hmm. um, I would say one thing that I had to unlearn going from a fine art degree to illustration, that was the biggest jump. I, I had falsely assumed that, oh, you know, I'm artsy, you know, I did training five years of art um, throughout high school too. And jumping into an illustration career, like it, it's no longer art for art's sake or art theory. It's uh, not much left to interpretation per se, like the arteries got to go on this side, the veins got to go on that. And um, learning to be didactic and communicative uh, for an external purpose, not internal, was something that I had to learn very quickly. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot more technical and and uh, craftsmanship like, I'd say, as opposed to, you know, draw what you feel. Mm -hmm. um, so that was an interesting learning for me. 
Right on. So now some of the work that jumps out at me the most in your portfolio, which is absolutely stunning, is the work you've done for National Geographic. I mean, mm. that is like a dream gig. So <laughs> how, did, how did you get involved with doing those illustrations? Uh, let's see. So, and I don't know if this is geographically advantageous that I went to Hopkins and that Baltimore was right next to D.C., Mm-hmm. Uh, Juan Velasco, the art director uh, at the time at Nat Geo, who was the ex-art art director at uh, New York Times, he would always come down to the Hopkins program and talk to us about the work there. Um, I think they had sort of an, um, a partnership or some sort of teaching arrangement between either the, the school and the institution, um, the institution being Nat Geo. So it was literally like a, I don't know, 40 minute train ride back and forth between the two cities, Baltimore and DC. Wow. So I didn't realize one, they were that close. Yeah. It's pretty close without rush hour. I recall it was, it was uh, less than an hour. Um, so that was one advantage. You know, I, we already had that sort of geographical connection and, and the connection from Hopkins to Net Geo. Uh, and then an internship program. I don't know if they still run it. If, if they do, I would highly recommend any medical illustration straighter in training to, to, to apply. Um, but that was open, applications are open in my last year of, of, of medical illustration. And um, I think at the time, because of my fine art background and my uh, love for more of sort of the, the hand-drawn qualities of medical illustration, um, I think my portfolio resonated with the, the lead artist there at the time. Actually, he's still there, Fernando Batista. Um, and so they saw a sort of natural fit there. Um, and yeah, got got the gig, moved down to DC. Um, didn't have to move too too far. All my stuff from Baltimore to DC, and uh, yeah, rest is history. Right on. Yeah, I think that must have been such a, an exciting experience to have somebody who is so experienced in the field. And and also, I, I've seen a few videos with Fernando, and the way he talks to other collaborators, and he he just has this energy about him that's very welcoming of new ideas, and and also like drawing out new ideas out of out of other people. Like, I don't know, is that oh, does that amazing. sort of sound accurate? Hundred percent, hundred percent. That was also something surprising for me actually, because going there, I thought, okay, this is my first quote unquote job at a school. I'm gonna have to follow a bunch of rules and learn their ways. They kind of just said, here's your computer you know, here's the project kind of, you know, go at it. So that was like frightening, but also so inspiring how much trust they put in their team. Mm. And it was actually a um, part of what I bring with me today is like leaving Nat Geo, understanding that those, those were the kinds of teams that I wanted to surround myself with. If I were to start my own company, people who were egoless, high achieving, really ambitious, uh, collaborative too. You know, there's there's an art director in every uh, project, um, creative director. There's an editor, writer, cartographer, the ones that draw the maps. Really cool people I got to work with. You know, the researchers themselves who are located all over the world. So we have to adjust our meeting schedules according to if they're in Greenland or Australia or what what have you. But the collaborative nature was like, wow, this is what I want to mimic um, in any kind of capacity when I when I enter the you know workforce again or if I start my own company. Um, but yeah, the autonomy and the freedom that mentors like Fernando and, and Juan Velasco offered were, were uh, really, I think, formative for me in my early parts of my career. That's awesome. It's interesting because you mentioned that these folks who 
clearly, I mean, they're operating at such a high level of skill. And you mentioned how just cool they are to be around and egoless. Oh, yeah. It kind of reminds me a little bit of martial arts and some of the folks mm. that I've met who are like the most dangerous guy in the dojo <laughs> will usually be like a total teddy bear. I mean, he'll be the sweetest 100%. guy when you, when you talk to him. And I think that there's something there about folks who are, you know, sort of somewhere in the middle tends to be tend to be a little maybe like, uh, you know, intimidated or, yeah. uh, you know, kind of freaking out a little bit internally about like, you know, where do I stack up? And I think that can sometimes lead to people being maybe a little nasty or, you know, <laughs> overly competitive. So 100%. yeah, what advice do you have to, for folks to kind of get through that stage where you're building skill and you know, you've got something, but you're not quite at your peak yet. How do you push through that and get to your highest level so that you can you can be, you know, more accepting and a more free person. Hmm. I'm thinking back to like a time at Hopkins when I was sitting in one of the medical anatomy classes and there was this student, I forget her name now. She was one of the medical students there. And she always sat in the front row and asked a million questions. So the point where some of the students were kind of getting frustrated and were like, wow, she, she must not be that smart or intelligent or read up on on the topic, but ultimately she did the best because she asked all the questions and, you know, wasn't afraid to, to ask that, you know, quote unquote, dumb question to the teacher. I think that really resonated with me. And, um, it was such a defining moment because now looking at those that are successful, even here at, at BioRender, those that aren't afraid to ask those questions and approach everything with a, with a dose of, you know, curiosity. I think not just here at the company, but really anywhere in life, I think that's what will uh, take you furthest because it's, you know, there's no point of pretending like, you know, the answer, if you don't, it's, it's only going to hurt you and, and the projects. So I think that level of curiosity and vulnerability that you bring to projects uh, and life in general is, is, is so important. And it's something that I've had to learn too, because I've thought that being a leader of, you know, 75 person company, I had to know the answers all the time or had to sound like I knew the answers, but in actual fact, if, if I don't know and lean on my team for their support or ask experts, you know, that's, that's really the best way to move forward. It just doesn't, doesn't help anyone to kind of, um, you know, puff your chest and, and pretend like, you know, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. sage advice. That's good. Yeah. So, you know, I get a lot of questions from folks who are looking to enter into the field. And I see a lot of these questions where it's, it's some variation of, do I really need to go to grad school? It's usually, <laughs> you know, for a lot of folks, I think that price tag really just sets them back a little bit, but I personally feel that, uh, I, I mean, I hope I don't, uh, you know, influence your response, but my, my personal take is I think it's absolutely worth it to go mm-hmm. through the program, but, mm-hmm. but what is your advice? What is your take on that? Do you think grad school is necessary to enter mm. the field? You know, that's a, that's a good question. Again, ben, medical illustration is becoming such a broad term these days that I feel like it would depend on the kind of medical illustration that you want to ultimately work in, mm. but, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I think the value that it brings is actually to convince yourself that it's something you want to do a financially, you're going to invest that money time. It's, you know, at least two years, you've got to 
well, probably more if you're, if you don't have an art background, you've got to prepare your portfolio. It's almost proof to yourself that like, okay, I really want to do this. I think medical school has that same way of self-selecting people out in the second, third year when they're like, ah, you know what, this is maybe not something I want to do. You don't want to find out after you're in your fourth year of like a neurosurgical residency or something like it's, I think that, uh, that filtering process is important. And then the connections, I would say, you know, like the, the, those that are working in the field, they'll point you in, in career opportunities, um, create that tribe and support network. For me, ultimately, it was also finding that tribe. Like I said, in undergrad, mm -hmm. I was hanging with the art students who thought the scientists were nerds. And then I was hanging out with the scientists who thought the artists were, you know, super strange folks. And then when <laughs> I entered the field of medical illustration, I was like, ah, okay, I feel like these are my people. Like I can finally relate to them. Um, cause we are such a unique breed of people, right? The way we think and the way we, uh, nerd out on things. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. From, so from like the people you've encountered who might be, you know, newly entering the field or, you know, are just kind of getting used to it or who don't, who don't know yet, what are some maybe misperceptions that you've picked up on? Of the field of medical illustration? Mm hmm Hmm. You probably hear this a lot. I do too. But when I explain what a medical illustrator does, the first thing they say is, oh, like those textbooks. And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. That's one application. But that's kind of, they think that's the sort of, um, you know, the, the world of medical illustration exists in these printed books. Interestingly as well, I think, and I think a lot of employers are picking up on this, but the interdisciplinary skills that you um, acquire as a medical illustrator in the, in this training field, or the ones that actually choose to enter the field, their skills are so widely applicable that, you know, entering the field of medical illustration doesn't necessarily mean you have to then draw net or like illustrations, you know, there's mm -hmm. a, it's sort of a, a platform for which you can experience other types of jobs. Really. I think, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a good springboard to, exciting new careers that may not sound traditionally tied to medical illustration. Like I, I think I spoke about this at Uncon, but um, you know, UX design, product design, uh, product management, service design. I mean, those things I think are absolutely like parallel to the kinds of work and um, skills you acquire as a medical illustrator. So, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. So you had given a presentation at this, I think it was last year's Uncon for Biomedical Communications Alumni Association, which is mm -hmm. an annual event we hold here in Toronto, which of course this past year had been virtual, but uh, you gave a great talk on alternative career paths within the field. And it included, you know, several of those job titles you just described. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that in that, how, how did you discover these different roles and where do you see them fitting in the production pipeline for a studio? I guess the work at BioRender, I wouldn't necessarily define as traditionally studio work, but specific to the roles that I had spoken about, I sort of through trial and error, like for myself, you know, growing up and helping my, my dad set up his websites and, uh, you know, email uh, communication with customers and helping out my, my friends in the tech space, start tech startups, you know, set up their, their marketing collateral. I thought, wow, I didn't think that having a degree in medical illustration would allow me to do all these different things, you know? And so when we started to build up, I remember, of course, 
the core skills we were hiring for were medical illustrators to create medical illustrations, you know, within the application, which are uh, these sort of proprietary icons and templates for other scientists to be able to be empowered to create their own figures. But tangential to that, I started seeing the medical illustrators on the team picking up other projects that weren't necessarily in the realm of medical illustration, you know, things like um, UX design, even customer experience, having that level of empathy and being able to think from the user's perspective in that sense, because we have to do that as illustrators, as, as storytellers. If what we're saying isn't resonating or understandable from, say, a patient's point of view, then we haven't done our job. And that core skill set really translates to when you're talking to customers and clients mm. or candidates. Mm. Um, so that was really interesting, seeing the medical illustrators on our team thriving in departments, I guess you can call it, that weren't necessarily the art team or the you know the creative department. That was really eye-opening to me. Also, I think it's just the nature of being in this sort of Venn diagram or multidisciplinary sect, you know, this this um, field. It just naturally means that we're all coming from different backgrounds, and mm-hmm. our brains are are sort of programmed in a way to be able to pick up a new skill more easily maybe than others. So that, that's that been really exciting. And I think at the core, we do have a little bit of an advantage at BioRender in that really anything you touch here, every department you enter, we're all marching and you know walking towards a common goal, which is to empower scientists to visually communicate research. And you can't really get away from the excitement that that would bring to someone entering the field of medical illustration. Like you, you just, it, it's by nature, you're helping. If even if you're on a sales call, if you're um, designing, you know, UI buttons for a pop-up modal, if you're running a UX study, all of it relates back to medical illustration. So it's uh, kind of unfair in that sense, because everything that, um, you know, you just, you just sort of at the core, understand the problem from every angle as a medical illustrator, Mm. whether it's Mm -hmm. through the illustrations themselves, the challenge, the visual challenge of, you know, how do you create, you know, a T cell interacting with, you know, uh, a cancer cell in the most visually appealing way, all the way up to, you know, how would scientists approach this kind of illustration if they were to do it themselves? Like just every problem you can think of um, that we touch here is, somehow advantageous to have that medical illustration degree. Right on, right on. Yeah, we, you know, we should probably back up just a little bit and tell people about BioRender. Like, tell us, what is BioRender? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sorry, I should have started sorry. with that. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, um, let's see. I guess I can kind of describe a little bit of the, the genesis of it and that'll kind of maybe give paint more color uh, to the story. So when I was helping out clients through our studio Anatomize, which actually in and of itself is still running, we've got how many artists on it? I think about 11 medical illustrators across North America working on several projects still. But I'm about 3% involved in Anatomize right now, 97% BioRender, I'd say, if I were to divide up my week. But uh, BioRender was sort of a serendipitous product that came out of a need that we discovered through Anatomize. So we had hundreds of scientists coming to us saying, hey, we need these graphics. Uh, my budget is within, I don't know, 50 bucks to 500 bucks. And and as you know, it, within those budgets, it's sometimes not even worth firing up Photoshop to, to start those graphics for them. Mm-hmm. So BioRender came to be because we realized there was a need in the market. We 
interviewed and talked to hundreds of scientists and we kind of built it as this thing that we thought maybe they can use this and we'll keep running anatomize and that will be sort of our core business. And it's, you know, the sort of scales have uh, tipped in that Byron was obviously, you know, taking up a lot more of my time and team has gotten much, much larger as a result. Um, at its core, if you know what Canva is, or obviously Adobe, um, Byrunder, depending on who I speak to, I, I describe Byrunder as the Canva for science or Canva for biology or the Adobe for science. Um, and, uh, Lately, it's been interesting because um, realizing more and more that yes, we are a software product that's specialized, but we actually aren't a product for experts like Adobe and um, you know Autodesk products are. Mm-hmm. We're really a product for democratizing a skill set for um, non-experts. So think more of like the Shopify's or Webflow or Weebly or Squarespace, those kinds of products. And so thinking about product development has been interesting because I've had to shift from trying to build a product that is really specialized. And, you know, we, we, the, I think the, um, the biggest regret would be becoming Adobe and becoming as complex to use as that, as an illustrator mm-hmm. or Photoshop. And it's mm-hmm. really thinking about, okay, let's strip away things as we're building. It's actually removing more and more and subtracting instead of adding interesting experience. Yeah, it's something that I've had to learn more and more because, again, these individuals, these scientists are trying to accomplish a task that has traditionally been reserved for experts. So this product, this tool has to resonate with those non-experts. So the language we use, the way that tools are presented to them in the user user interface, the UI, all of that has to sort of harken back to easy to use products like, again, Shopify and Webflow. Um, sort of non-expert tools. Wow. Wow. So are you still doing uh, illustration work as well? Or is it kind of just all management? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So that's been an interesting shift in my career. I mean, as I said, when I was 12 or 13, I thought I'd be doing illustrations for the rest of my life. And I did for 20 years, you know, following that, it was, I was very much considering myself at an IC or individual contributor. Now to being a manager of manager of managers is such a different dimension of thinking, um, the training you need. And, you know, as a founder CEO, you actually have to throw away almost monthly the things that you learn to do well and get bad at doing another thing until you start to do it okay, Hmm, and then throw that out again the next month. So that satisfaction that I had of spending decades getting good at something and getting it to perfection, maybe similar to how you were um, treating your time in in the the culinary years of your life, (laughs) um, had to throw that away. And even today, you know, shipping products, shipping digital products, you have to be okay with something being 80% okay, getting the feedback, iterating, A-B testing, very, very different from creating um, something, you know, like a three-page centerfold in that geo where we had months to perfect it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. So like, what is a day like in the life of someone who's running a company like BioRender? <laughs> you don't want to see my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, let's see. I, I think I have like every 20 minute increment booked doing something. Wow. wow. Um, but that's probably, you know, I'm at the point now that I'm, I'm, I'm looking for help and we're hiring uh, chief of staffs and executive assistants and people to really help me manage my time and like, you know, book in a, a lunch buffer. So I actually remember to eat, but um, yeah, I would say more so now. Um, and again, I used to think that I had to be in meetings and really direct people and give ideas and, um, you know, say the way that things are, are should be done. But really it's actually being in a room and being as quiet as I can be now, because I'm realizing as the company's growing, we're 75, almost 80 people. I have to be really careful about the things that I say, because if I come into a meeting and I have an idea and I, and I open my mouth by the end of that, they're going to walk away and say, Oh, okay. The CEO wants this. We should go and build that. But really I was just kind of, you know, it was a thought that came into my head and, and maybe the next day, you know, I wasn't really expecting it to be built. Same thing goes with my founders, you know, Ryan and Katya, if uh, we, we've got to be a little more careful now about what we, uh, what we get excited about. Mm-hmm. And then also not being too leading because, you know, the team, the team is the, the people on the team are so brilliant that I don't want to necessarily um, taint what, what they think are good ideas because they come with such good ones that um, I want their voices to be heard, especially the ones that maybe, you know, are a little more hesitant to speak up. We want to make sure that their voices are, are the loudest. Yeah. Let's see day, day in the life. It's, it's, it's really that a lot of hiring these days, I would say about half of my, my calendar is filled with, with interviews and and meeting people and going for virtual. And now I guess more and more in-person coffee chats and, and that's great. Well, that's a a fantastic sign of growth and that's an excellent position to be in, especially uh, these days. So I'm very happy to hear that. I'm also happy you brought that up because that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is when you are interviewing for folks to hire, what are the qualities you're looking for? You know, what does a successful candidate look like to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'd say here at BioRender, curiosity is number one. As I have alluded to before, you know, because there's no template or blueprint to what's been done before for a company like ours, Curiosity is absolutely uh, important and also having to helping to solve complex problems that have never been solved before. I think that level of curiosity probably also comes naturally with people who have maybe a science background or even a, a mix of backgrounds that are interdis- interdisciplinary. Sort of a team first mentality is really important. I think independence and autonomy is is super key. I think thriving in a team environment is is really imperative though because you get those great ideas when you work collaboratively with others and you invite those unique perspectives in. I would say another thing is, you know, obviously working at a startup, the tolerance and maybe passion and excitement for a somewhat unstructured, I wouldn't say chaotic per se, but those that thrive uh, in chaos or organized chaos are are really are really key. Um, we don't necessarily have perfect processes or playbooks, or even in some cases, you know, perfectly laid out career trajectories, which is actually exciting for a lot of folks who, you know, might not really know exactly what they want to do five, 10 years from now, but you actually have a lot of autonomy to sort of craft your own, your own life, your own career here. If you want to start you know, dip your toes into UX design or product design, or, you know, being a, an individual contributor as a medical illustrator, you can start there. And then you can move into pretty much any department within the company, um, pretty horizontally and easily. 
because we don't have those, you know, sort of cement walls in between teams per se. And because of the, you know, again, team nature and collaborativeness of the company, everyone's very open to sharing, you know, why they're excited and passionate about what they do. So those are, those are some key qualities that, that we certainly look for. And I think a general self-awareness of maybe, mm-hmm. you know, one's own weaknesses and, and strengths, everybody has those. So if we're fully vulnerable and transparent with what those are, then, you know, you can, you can only succeed um, as opposed to, you know, trying to hide those and masking those instead of growing from them. So yeah, those would be the main skills I would say that we look for in any, in any position at, at BioRender. Um, of course, for specific medical illustration, we do look for a strong portfolio, not necessarily in just two-dimensional work because we actually have a variety of types of projects that we, we like to work on. So some 3D work is great, animation, both uh, you know video and stop motion, 2D illustration, of course. I think some traditional drawing skills are, are, are always important. And yeah, I would say maybe also, and you don't have to have this exact, but some idea of, uh, or focus on, on certain media. I think sometimes the fault is, and I had this too, coming out of grad school was having maybe a sample of everything in my portfolio and then presenting it to a company and, and them not really knowing what to do with that because it doesn't look mm. too focused. I think to some degree, it's good to show variety, but also have a stance and uh, be proud of areas that you actually really aspire to grow into or are passionate about. There's no sense of saying that I can do it all when you really probably want to lean towards one media versus another. And that's okay because, you know, there are opportunities in, in all types of media within medical illustration. Right on, right on. That leads me to want to ask a question. You sort of touch on this a little bit. I'm wondering where do you stand on the idea between being a generalist and being a specialist. It sounds like you're maybe leaning a little bit towards, you know, we should be a specialist. I've always sort of grappled with this because I feel as medical illustrators, we're, you know, tasked with combining medicine and visualization skill sets. And so there is sort of this generalist component to what we have to do, as well as all the, you know, multitasking and juggling multiple projects. I mean, that is also sort of being a generalist too. So what are your thoughts on this generalist versus specialist? I don't have a perfect answer for that. Um, but thinking at the top of my head, as a manager or employer, I can, I'm sure you know those can relate to this answer. But if you want a certain job done, you're absolutely going to go to the specialist, right? If you want your knee surgery, you're not going to go with the person that says, hey, I can do it all. You know, I'm a jack of all trades. You want to go to that specialist. Same with getting your appliances fixed in your house. That being said, you know, there are some types of medical illustration that have a larger tolerance perhaps of someone that can sort of jump in and do a certain task. Um, If you're really looking for that ultra high fidelity 3D animation, I don't think it's something you could sort of just dip your toes into and, and become really good at overnight. So I would say some skills require a certain threshold of technical abilities that you can't sort of learn overnight. Those are the things that you really have to almost commit to for a short time, get really good at it, see if you like it and explore that further. Um, That takes a certain level of commitment, of course, you've got to learn those 3D skills. And perhaps there's others that you could get buy-in by sort of dipping your toes and being okay at, you know, perhaps, you know, more simple graphics or animations. But I would say, yeah, it probably depends on the level of technical skills needed to 
to become, um, you know, baseline good at that thing. At the beginning, though, general gen, being a generalist is is really important for sure. I think it kind of mirrors the way startups run or are built. It's usually those Swiss Army knife people that thrive in the early years, and then ultimately. For better or worse, you sort of have to start to specialize because the stakes get so much higher and the team gets bigger that those that succeed, you sort of have to start to pick and choose areas that you, you know, you want to, you want to uh, thrive in. Right on. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. What are some of the qualities you try to foster in your culture of the, of the company there? Yeah. And, and this goes in line with um, the qualities we look for in candidates. Um, because we're really, I would say, careful about the culture we've built here at Byrander. And initially it wasn't very intentional, but realizing that the things that we valued and the things that we really tried to filter for during the interview process um, are things that once people join really appreciate. So at an early stage, we tried to bake that into the DNA of the company things like, um, you know, collaborativeness. That's really, if you ask anybody at the company now, one or two words that describe the Byrunner culture. Um, some people will say it's playful. Some, um, you know, again, that we nerd out. A lot of people say that we are extremely collaborative. And I think that's such an amazing thing because I didn't, again, I thought that was just the nature of how most companies operated. I took, definitely took it for granted. But when we have new folks joining, they say, you know, it's a, it's a shocking difference between the last company they worked at. Um, I realize that we are, you know, doing a good job there. Of course, there's a lot of things we can improve, but I think um, those kinds of values are hard to instill or change once a company and culture has been codified at a certain level. Interesting. Mm. Wow. And now... I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your onboarding process with new clients. Uh, do you have sort of like a, a set system for kind of bringing them in and, you know, going through like a discovery phase? Like what, is it, what does hmm. this look like? It's a good question. Um, clients as in, I would say like larger customers. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, back in the day, the really cool thing was you could fly out to say South San Francisco and literally just be shoulder to shoulder with the scientists, um, say at Pfizer, Genentech, or Amgen, um, and you know, lean over their shoulder, have them open, you know, their laptop, and we just fire up Biomender together, and we fill the room with a few hundred people. We order lunch, and that's that. Um, nowadays, it's obviously remote, but uh, we do have a whole team dedicated to that entire process, which is so fascinating in and of itself the whole science of customer success and sales is something that I'm, yeah, it's, it's, it's really inspired me. Actually, anyone who wants to start a business, they have to, I would say, get really good at uh, sales. That's like the number one skill I would recommend because you're constantly selling, whether it's uh, to candidates or customers, um, to, to the team. Um, but for new customers, I would say, you know, there's, there's obviously the discovery calls that happen through the sales process. If they're, you know, if we're a good fit for their needs or their problem that they need to solve, um, hopefully they purchase the product and, um, depending on, you know, how they're purchasing, if it's sort of a site-wide license, like we do with certain schools, um, or companies then our onboarding process might be a little bit different, but, um, yeah, ultimately it's all about hearing about what their needs are. 
and then tailoring that experience to uh, what they need. And it's not always about, okay, you know, here's all the things that Byronder can do for you. It's all about creating like a sense of value. So maybe it's more leading the conversation towards, you know, how can we make you successful in creating a presentation deck? And we just naturally know presentation decks by scientists are filled with figures. So, okay, let's, you know, talk about how to be successful there using Byronder. But um, if you approach it from just like, you know, shoving the product down their throat kind of a uh, mentality, then, you know, they're, they're not going to uh, uptake it as, as easily as if you actually approach it from a problem solving point of view. Mm. Yeah, I think that, yeah, the perspective you have on a situation can make all the difference, right? My most recent interview uh, with Sam Bond, she was talking about how there's kind of this uh, mentality that creeps in sometimes where when folks are freelancing, they kind of get this sort of feeling like, oh, the client is, you know, like we're, we're in some kind of battle here. But she's, you know, she was saying, well, the client is not the enemy. That's, you know, they've come to you to help them solve a problem. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about, you know, conflict resolution or maybe even just shifting the mentality. And are you talking more between our, like, I guess the company and customer or, or amongst I think any sort of professional relationship, sort of difference of opinion or those tense moments, you know, like whether, yeah, whether it's between the vendor and the the client or between teammates, you know, what sort of advice might you have or or insights there? Yeah. Conflict resolution. It's so interesting. I find that like 99% of conflicts occur with uh, miscommunication or just ill communication. And so it's really about sort of clarifying what someone's ultimate needs are and what needs aren't being met, um, where there's misalignment and understanding. And once you kind of get into a room and uh, clarify those things and acknowledge and hear someone's concerns, it's, it's incredible how, how you can make strides in a relationship that way. With a client, I would say we've been a little bit luckier in that we haven't had those um, you know, major, major frictions, the, the frictions might come from say talking to, you know, a legal department or it when we're trying to implement software. And that's maybe more on the technical side, but again, that's all thinking about, you know, someone's needs, you know, at the end of the day, they are doing their job. They don't want to get fired for implementing a product uh, in the wrong way. And so it's really aligning with um, that person's needs and making sure their concerns are heard and met. Right on. Right on. I think that is key. Absolutely. Communication. And it's also like an ongoing evolution as well, right? You know, learning like your own communication style and communication style of the people that you're interacting with too, right? 100%. And I mean, like in this, I guess we're kind of getting into post-COVID era, but like the base level anxiety that comes with, you know, not having that face-to-face flesh interaction and um, having these sort of like uh, misinterpretations of messages is, is so rampant. So I think it, it always helps getting in a room synchronously talking things through as opposed to, um, drawing conclusions in your head and, and assuming the worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting that you, you know, you bring up the, the technology and the, you know, the virtual meeting, you know, standard that we're all accustomed to now moving forward, you know, what, are some changes you think we should all be expecting or, or getting used to in, in the way that we do business? Well, certainly don't have to fly to San Francisco right now and spend like the thousand dollars on a, a lunch and learn. I think we're, our tolerance for 
closing deals, you know, internationally on a Zoom call are becoming more and more acceptable. That being said, I think once we're back in person, I bet you those people that are able to make that extra effort to fly across the country to close that deal are going to have an advantage. I wouldn't say so much is true for, say, uh, a team setting. We're actually now, we're committed to being a distributed team. We've got a lot of folks on the West Coast, so in BC and, and the US. Uh, we've got a team uh, centralized in Europe to cover um, some of the customers there. We've got quite a few customers uh, in Germany area and um, Asia as well we're looking to hire. So we're now by default distributed. We're actually moving into a larger office because we know that as we scale, we're going to need the resources there. We're going to have at least, you know, quarterly in-person interactions. Um, yeah, but that's also something we're trying to embrace is really optimizing that online remote office experience, but also, you know, understanding that those in-person interactions are so precious when that does happen that uh, we can't, um, ignore the value that those bring. So we're going to try to bring the team together, you know, at least four times a year, maybe more for management and execs. Um, and then having a new office is going to help with that as well. Right on. That's awesome. Now, technology wise, when it comes to like the production side of stuff, have you played around with any new software that you've like really been excited. I mean, I know you're building software, but on the production side, I'm just curious. I feel like I'm constantly doing R and D on, on new software out there, mm -hmm. um, whether it's in the sciences or like I said, those like software that democratize a skill set. I think is always interesting. You know, how do they talk to customers in layman's terms? A really cool software recently that we've discovered and taken advantage of in sort of COVID era is called gather town. It's this sort of like hmm. online virtual event meeting space. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but oh, it's a Y Combinator company. It's, it's sort of like Slack meets hangouts meets virtual arcades. And you can hire these room designers or interior decorators that are virtual and they can create sort of all hands rooms for you. You oh, can wow. create like uh, little gaming areas where there's like Tetris and poker and it's kind of black mirror-ish to a certain extent, um, <laughs> but it's, it's really brought the team together for a lot of our sort of happy hour uh, initiatives. And um, yeah, that's, it's, it's been fun to see products like that expand and get a lot of adoption. Right on. Yeah, that's cool. Have you come up with any strategies for kind of managing all the, the digital noise, you know, all the distractions? Oh gosh, I get so much. <laughs> I feel like I spend 15 minutes every morning just uh, blocking spam uh, <laughs> emails that come in from my account. If you're really bombarded with emails like I am, Superhuman is a email provider that has been a total godsend. So hmm. it's hard to explain why it's such a good product. It's not cheap by any means. I think it's like 30, 50 bucks a month when Gmail is a free product. So they're really mm -hmm. catering to people who do get 50 to hundred emails a day, perhaps. And you just right. type filters through that. But that's been a godsend for me. I think when I accidentally open Gmail, it gives me a mini heart attack now. <laughs> um, but, but the onboarding experience for a superhuman has been really cool too. Uh, the founder of superhuman is interesting. He does a lot of talks on how to build really good experience products and optimizing onboarding experiences. So I would recommend um, looking into those if you, if you want. Right on. Oh, that's cool. Wow. It, you know, you've had such an incredible journey having 
been performing and, and creating medical illustration at such a high level. And now you're running a company at an equally high level. How have all these experiences you know, shaped your worldview? What do you kind of see for the future? And how have all your experiences in your career changed the way that you look at the world? One thing's for sure, everything's up for change. When you're in sort of that entrepreneurial mindset, you realize that everything's just built by other people. Like, you know, think back to grade one, that kid that was like eating glue and sticking (laughs) pencils up his nose. He's probably the CEO of some company now. And it's like, literally, we have so much power to make change that it's, it's really inspiring uh, and daunting at the same time, because, you know, I mean, like, who am I? I just, you know, we came up with this idea for BioRender. It's making huge impact in the world. We have think almost a million users and, you know, That's 3 awesome. million illustrations made on the app, but you know, at the end of the day, we're just people. Right. And when we talk to the procurement office at Pfizer, they're just people too. Everything's negotiable. It's kind of disenchanting and inspiring at the same time to know that anything is up for change. And then you can make that impact. Right on. That's, that's awesome. That really segues nicely into my next question, which is, you know, how have these experiences helped you to face new challenges? Because I think that's something that's just ubiquitous in our field, right? Is there's always a challenge. There's always a communication that needs to be made that hasn't been done before, right? What have you picked up about facing a new challenge and being able to you know, navigate to a solution? Hmm. I think more and more, because I think maybe my time is limited. Um, I'm realizing that there is someone out there that can probably do it better than me (laughs) or, you know, lead up to the experts, you know, fixing your dishwasher, all those kinds of analogies. Like there's Mm -hmm. always somebody else that that can do it better. So hire for that. That's for me. I think as a CEO, I have to just learn to do better, delegate better and and trust others who are better at their job to do it because at a certain point you can't do everything. Right. Yes. This is true. Yes. Are you familiar with Chris Doe? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. He, he went on a big kick uh, not long ago talking about, you know, delegate as much as you can. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. So what is your favorite way to keep learning now? Because as you mentioned, you, you know, your time is precious. I, I doubt you have time to, you know, sit and, you know, just watch YouTube all day, you know, <laughs> as much as you'd like to. Right. But yeah. How, how do you stay up on, you know, all the things that you want to learn about? Oh, Gosh, sometimes there are things that I have to learn about. So I do, but it's interesting. You know, you're at like a dinner party and you get sat next to someone and you're like, oh, you know, I'm kind of shy to talk to them or I have nothing in common. If you actually sit and think about how interesting everybody in this world is and what a unique perspective they bring and you kind of approach it from that angle there's so much to learn and so much that you can sort of apply back to problems that you need to solve mm. it's not always going to be in a book i sometimes find inspiration from the weirdest podcast i actually force myself to not listen to the same podcaster or author or director of movies as much as possible because you get such a unique experience and learning from, from talking to people from different worldly perspectives. Those are unexpected ways that I've found solutions to problems or ways to look at problems from different angles. But you know, all the traditional startup books are super helpful. I probably have a list of 15 or so that I could share that have been totally game-changing for me. 
Nice. You know, those books that where you're like, wow, had I not come across this, my life would be so different. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. I've got a handful of those for sure. <laughs> I love to hear your list yeah. too. Oh yeah. We'll have to do a book exchange. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> right on. I, now I'm glad you mentioned finding inspiration in different sources. I wanted to ask you, what's something you pay more attention to now that you didn't before earlier in your career? Hmm. Wow, that's such a good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. I think because right now it's sort of like at the front of my mind of, of becoming a better coach and manager is learning to be more vulnerable. It's something that I've never really tied back to problems in my life before. And we actually got an executive coach uh, uh, on the founding team and it's been game-changing. They're not cheap, but they're, they're really helpful. And a lot of it's sort of the touchy-feely stuff. I mean, it is tactical in a sense, you know, like what kind of leader should we hire next? How do we rearrange the org chart to be more operationally efficient? But a lot of it is, you know, finding those high leverage things you can do in your life because interestingly, they actually come from repeated patterns of, you know, sort of maybe quote unquote, fatal flaws of your personality that are inevitably changeable. But unless you start to like really think about that, it's hard to, to make change that doesn't feel intimidating. So for me, it actually kind of points back to the ability to be more vulnerable, be more comfortable in my own skin. I don't know if it's just by the nature of, you know, growing up as a immigrant, female, I think in the Japanese culture, it's a little different the way you're raised to be quiet and uh, sort of submissive and avoid conflict, things like that. Um, and certainly you don't see a lot of, I guess, well, at least when I was starting the company, people that looked like me that were trying to start tech companies. So I think it's been a really um, powerful learning experience for me to think like, I don't have to act and be like the CEOs that I thought that I had to act like like kind of bold and aggressive and like in your face and that there's a lot of power in leading by being vulnerable first. And um, that's, that's something that I think about more now in my career than I did before. Wow. That's really interesting. I, I totally agree. I think the nature of business has been changing and we're definitely feeling a lot of these reverberations from all these you know, world events that have taken place over the past few decades from, from going through, from integrating all this knowledge into, you know, the enterprises you've been running here, what are some of sort of predictions or, you know, feelings you have about what could be coming down the future for us in the next five to 10 years? You know, what, what should we all kind of be getting ready for? Oof, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. I mean, I would say maybe in the world of medical illustration specifically, that there's no, there's no doubt the technology is going to influence and empower the way that scientists are going to start taking the leap and creating, you know, graphics for themselves. And I mean, that's just the nature of how technology and blank, you know, kind of marry and empower the world to do a skill that was ultimately almost inaccessible by most populations. I talked about things like WordPress before, where when it first came around, 
it was sort of this big threat or elephant in the room that maybe they would displace developers. And actually, in fact, it created way more jobs in the market. And now we have WordPress uh, qualified developers. And so um, I think there's a lot of change that will come to light in that sense. I think the way that scientists collaborate are going to be interesting too, that will really evolve. A lot of products are moving towards every software you can think of now, that sort of an online digitizing graphics tool has sort of a whiteboarding component to it. And I think that's just predicting the fact that we're all going to be always um, collaborating, maybe more of a remote environment now as well. So behaviors of scientists will change. And that I think by nature is going to change the way medical illustrators have to adjust uh, in how they're offering their services. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad you said this because I think there is maybe a concern that some people might have, not just about BioRender, but from a lot of, from AI tools where they might be kind of thinking like, oh man, you know, is this going to replace my job? Is this going to like, you know, have it so that clients no longer need to, to talk with me? I personally don't think that's the case because mm -hmm. as you pointed out earlier, these are folks who probably wouldn't have been clients in the first place because they didn't have the budget, but now they do have the budget for what you're offering through BioRender, which is, you know, a lower fee to entry, right, to, to get access to that tool. So moving into the next few decades where not only is there going to be BioRender, which allows scientists to make their own graphics, but there's going to be other tools as well. There's going to eventually be tools that allow people to make their own medical animations. There's mm -hmm. going to be, you know, stock animations that you'll just be able to grab little clips from. I mean, there's going to be AI tools where you're going to be able to plug in some terms and just come up with 3D anatomical representation of a region of anatomy. I mean, all this stuff is definitely coming. So totally. what, what do you think the role of medical illustrators are going to be with all of these tools accessible to everyone? I mean, there's no doubt we're going to have to evolve our tools in how we're creating these visuals. That being said, I think you can look at it more like the size of the pie is getting larger. So everyone's share is actually uh, growing with it. It's not like, you know, there's a finite size of the pie and it's going to be, you know, taken up by, by some players more than others necessarily, i.e., you know, buyer window by taking away jobs from medical illustrators. Interestingly, even when we started the company three, almost four years ago now, just the sheer value, the, the um, perception of why good visuals matter has changed in those four years. If you mm -hmm. compare the kinds of tweets, for example, that people tweeted about buyer under in the early days, some of them were, were so angry that just the mere fact we were even charging for the product. Mm. They were like, well, mm -hmm. I have these free versions of software. Why would I even bother, you know, taking out my credit card and buying something like this software? It's totally not worth it. Um, and through education, through persistence, and through seeing their colleagues, you know, having success with more aesthetic and communicative visuals, realizing the value in that and saying, oh, okay, buy under, you know, premium is totally worth every penny, you know, definitely highly recommend the, the upgraded version. Even those, like those, those small changes in the structure of, of tweets was so interesting to see. And I think, you know, we're all part of this sort of evolution of scientists and the world valuing graphics more. So there's also a shift in, and the perception of the value of high quality graphics. And I think we're all going to benefit from that.
Absolutely. It's sort of like our tolerance for good food in the city. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, it was okay to just eat, you know, fast food. And now, you know, there's, there's so much more opportunity for restaurateurs. I know it's kind of a strange comparison, but you know, the more someone, the more a community of people appreciates a certain thing, I think the value market for that expands. Bam. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. That's awesome. I also wanted to ask you because the way that you have presented your, uh, your product by render, you are giving people access to all of these images. Well, the templates, icons, I think built into your terms, you sort of have the redistribution rights and licensing all kind of laid out there. I'm curious through, through your work with BioRender and through Anatomize, mm-hmm. how have you dealt with, you know, the unfortunate infringement or, you know, misuse of, of imagery and, you know, how would you recommend to other people prepare themselves for that and, and how to best to deal with it? Such a good question. I've admittedly, you know, not been great at staying on top of that or even policing it. It's not something that we actively monitor and it's frankly almost impossible to do so. I mean, we have some guardrails where, you know, we kind of require sort of bylines or backlinks to graphics that get published from BioRender. But at the end of the day, it's not something that we police hard enough because it's not something that we want to fall back on as our value proposition or our moat. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to sustain as a company. So uh, we just believe that there are enough good players in the space that you know are paying for the product, are citing us correctly. I think there there was some research on you know the number of pirated Adobe products or people who have illegally downloaded you know those kinds of art software. None of us have, I'm sure, right? As students, <laughs> and you know they know that it's it's all sort of a wash at the end of the day because um, you know the value that the paid customers bring is is that much more significant. But as a, as a medical illustrator, I absolutely agree that uh, we do have to protect our rights. I was very conscious of that in making sure that when you sign up a new client, and this is more of your freelancing, so this is a little bit um, less on the, on the buyer under side, but through Anatomize, I've definitely been burned where I didn't get clients to sign contracts prior to starting a project or mm. wasn't clear enough in the terms of the number of iterations that were required and um, yeah, definitely got burned in the early days, but when we start to learn that it feels kind of icky to have people sign on the dotted line, you know, if you are excited about a project, but ultimately it protects everybody. So you kind of have to make sure you cover your grounds. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And one of the features, uh, well, maybe not feature, but one of the aspects of our work that I think is present in just about every gig is always the need to move quickly through the process. You know, clients need a fast turnaround time. They need to see those iterations and getting your speed up is one of the m- most important parts of developing the skill set, I believe in medical illustration. So uh, do you have any advice or tips on people who are whatever stage in the industry advice for them to kind of get their speed up? Speed up. Yeah. Interesting. I've actually always been a bit of a faster worker. So I think of back to when I was doing a lot of illustration work, what helped. If you're then this again, this is more related to freelance work and contract work, but um, iterations are always, always valuable. And um, I, I think if you work at an agency, it's probably almost required that you have to work in a more iterative process. You can't sort of go in a rabbit hole and come back a week later with an end product mm-hmm. because actually that does waste way more time than actually going and investing the time 
to get feedback along the way. So 100%, don't be afraid to stop, ask questions, get the feedback early. That ultimately does leave you time and actually feels counterintuitive to do so. Also, small life hack to set expectations, <laughs> under promise, over deliver. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that's always the case with clients. Right on. And then similar question, how do you know when a piece is done? Thinking now to my like oil painting days, I don't think it ever is really done. I guess for an illustration piece, I'd say when you've ultimately delivered the value that you set out to deliver, it's really helpful when you have almost like a, a problem statement set out at the beginning. Mm. There's this really good book called Working Backwards, which is sort of the story of how uh, Amazon builds out new features and products for as much as, you know, Amazon takes, uh, get, get, gets a bad rep for their culture, but uh, you, you can't deny the efficiency of the way they build and, and launch products. And they do this thing called writing out the PR FAQ, PR is in press release and frequently asked questions. Mm -hmm. They do these sort of fake press releases internally just to force the team to think about, you know, what customers would want and what ultimately is a problem that you're solving. And if your image, graphic, product, feature, what have you, services that original purpose that you set out to do, then I would say that's when you can consider it done and successful. After that, you're probably, you know, it's, it's diminishing returns or you're actually making it worse. So um, if you've solved that core product, then the bells and whistles are good, but maybe not even necessary by the end. Right on. I like that. I like that. So do you have anything uh, you're looking forward to in the next couple months? Uh, any events or presentations? Um, let's see here. Well, full disclosure, I'm five months pregnant. So oh, that's kind of exciting. That is exciting. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. I don't know when this podcast <laughs> is going to drop, but um, yeah, fingers crossed all goes well. If you ever want advice on how to build a company and a team and a baby at the same time, <laughs> I'm your person. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that that's exciting. It's definitely changed some of my, um, appreciation I'd say for the 9 billion people that have done it before me. <laughs> that's awesome. That's Don't awesome. Worry, I thought I just dropped that on you. <laughs> that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. I mean that plus, um, balancing going back to the conference circuit, that's pretty mm -hmm. exciting. I mean, the whole like booth selection and like figuring out the cities that we're going to be mapping out just at a meeting last week. We'll be in, uh, let's see, San Diego, Portland, DC, Boston, uh, Chicago, your home city. Um, right on, right on. It's, it's crazy. The things are, things are pretty much back to normal. I'd say in a lot of the U S so wow. we'll be sort of getting on that train in the next uh, several months. Awesome. Right on. Any, uh, anything else you want to uh, promote or any shout outs you want to give? Ooh, let's see. Well, shout out to you for doing this amazing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we need way more well, of these uh, thank you. in thank the field. You. Yeah, I think more people are going to start doing them too. You know, it's fun. I, I really like it. It's, it's a lot of fun. You have a great radio voice. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, let's see. Promote. I mean, um, as, as you can surmise, we're, we're obviously still uh, hiring a great deal and really across all disciplines, all teams, all experience levels. Even if you don't see a job listing on our site, I think it's firewinner.com slash careers. If you don't see what you know you might be immediately looking for, you can still write in and see if there might be a fit because we actually sometimes handcraft roles for individuals. I may have mentioned this before. There are some really kind of 
funky sounding titles that we've created over the years, mostly because like I said, our product is unique or company's unique and you can kind of build your own career in a sense. So we've been doing that and ensuring that there's obviously career ladders that you can see yourself growing into, you know, cause even as a medical illustrator, like what is the trajectory? <clears throat> Do you go in as a junior, mid senior, and then art director? That's kind of what I thought was the, you know, the ultimate career trajectory for all, all med ills, but it's not the case. So we have this thing called science designer. I think I've mentioned before where um, people who are science minded, but maybe don't have the illustration chops, but really good design skills. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they can provide a huge amount of value to, you know, scientists through making, you know, templates and designs and, you know, very promising career there. So yeah, I think if you have the basic qualities like curiosity and team first nature and, and our self-starter, then we'd be super excited to to meet you and speak with you. Shizuka, thank you so much for doing this. This has been amazing. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to you as well for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did having this conversation. It's been a pretty productive summer for me, and I hope it has been for you as well. I've got more great episodes coming soon, so stay tuned. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy.